Leanne, we missed the entire month of September. Danny, this is a bummer because this was stave September and we were going to do cheap brown with those stave sticks that uh, Mr. Jones and I always told you about. Yeah. And you're right. I'm going to have to ship you one because they're super cool. I think it'd only be right. So, and I think that considering how long it takes for Danny to cut an episode, we need to think about the March Madness bracket somewhere in January. Is that a good time for me to send you the, the bracket? Yeah, I think you can do right now. You can scratch my balls. That's what I think you can do right now. <laughs> well, they're lower these days, so I'm going to have to scratch down. <laughs> you get to reach. Throw <laughs> your nails up. Start the damn show. Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast. Today is the 29th of September in the year 2023. I am your host, Danny Paul. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Joining me in the Bob Media Studios is the Baron of Bourbon, the Kaiser of Cali, the Liege Lord of Loathe, the Uncoventry, ladies and gentlemen. Danny, it's great to see you. It's been way too <laughs> damn long. Oh. And I can tell it's been way too long because you are not at your A game. And I would like to say that we don't ever do this on a Friday. No, nope. it's a Friday. Ladies we and are gentlemen. recording on a Friday. Friday. This is uh, we're, gonna, we're switching things up here. It's a matter of uh, availability. We normally record the Bottle of Brown podcast on Thursdays for all you bobs out there. If anybody joining us, welcome. God damn it, welcome. <laughs> uh, we'll throw this at the top of the show. You want to call us at 602-529-4562. You want to email us. It is bottleofbrown at gmail.com. Are you what done? for this evening, Leon. Oh, my brown. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. What's your brown? Okay. Speak. I'm going to go all the way back to the year 1897. Good year. Good year. And drink Old Forester. Yeah. It is. It was for sale in Costco. Uh, I, I at like Old Forester. 35 bucks a bottle. Really? So I, of course, got like two or three bottles because it's outstanding if you can find it. Because why not? Because why not? Old Forester is sneaky good. It really is sneaky good. That's an interesting way to describe it. Because I don't think the original old forester is going to blow anybody's hair back but any of their their boutique or unique brands that they spin off all of them are outstanding so if you've seen old forester this is not the stock one it's probably worth it for you to pick it up and try it yeah they have a couple ones with the year on it they Mm -hmm. got bottle and bond and they they got they got some good stuff out there this one's 1897 bottle and bond and it's 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 a hundred proof. It's not rocket fuel, but it the taste is just outstanding. So kudos to Costco. Obviously, they always figure out the good ones. Good for you, sir. What are you having tonight? So we were trying to do, and we didn't apologize to the Bobs out there. One, Danny's lagging. So by the time you hear this, it's probably gonna be mid to late October, and we're recording this in September. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Bottle of Brown Podcast. Uh <laughs> we were gonna do stage September, but uh that idea failed miserably. So we're gonna be very proactive and digital dil, diligent about Rocktober. So for those Ooh. of you who can hear this when this is out, get yourself a glass of Rocktober when you're listening to the October episodes. And then for November, we're thinking we want to make it neat November. Mm. And then I don't know what we're going to do for December. We'll figure something out. But I, I would imagine that Mr. Jones is probably going to come back and say, we got to do peppermint, which not against it is. Uh, it is December after all Christmas for the Christians out there or for the uh, Festivus. So who knows? But uh, the reason I bring up, oh, and I don't remember the name of what I'm drinking. It's a cheap bottle that I spent nothing on. And we use those stave, uh, wooden stave sticks that you kind of, what we do is you put it in the bottle or you separate and you kind of, the first time we did it, I put these little half pint, um, canning jars and Mm -hmm. we filled the stick in there and that did the staving process. This time I just took a snap off the stick and I threw it right in the bottle. Interesting. The bottle there for six weeks. So I remember doing it, uh, carry the two sometime in late July. 
And the idea was I pulled this bottle out for Labor Day and I was so excited. We were going to do Stave September and then fucking wouldn't you know it. I fall way bought. So you know what? Life life gets in the way. Episode 83 on May 29th is the last episode we published. That's on me. No, life gets in the way. And we we made a move to Friday because Thursday has been so tough. So the problem here, though, with Friday and I think we saw this coming, which is why we didn't initially do the show on Fridays, is because we are both so damn tired and exhausted by the time we get to Friday that I can't wait for the podcast to drink my first bourbon of the night. So I'm probably a half bottle deep already, oh. which means, oh. I mean, mid show, I'm going to be slurring words oh, and I could then. rant on just about anything. So, so I don't know if that makes it good then. listening or bad listening, but we're, we're about to find out. Right, right. So I think I'm going to take a shot in the dark here. I want to say nothing is what he's going to say. That was a strong statement. It's not Grant Evans. It's Bob Evans. Samuel Grant. I'm drinking Samuel Grant tonight. For those of you at home, Samuel Grant is like $12 a gallon. Really Mm -hmm. great. But when you stave it, I got to say, what do you think? I, I like, it's a daily drinker. It's nice. It's only 40 proof. So it's mild. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, once you stave it, you get that kind of nice oak from the stave coming in. So it's not that, uh, that cheap acidic swill. You actually get a little bit of nice, not so much. That's of a, what I was wondering. Does it, does it taste like rubbing alcohol with, with a little wood actually, in it? It does not. You get put more, more wood in it. So it gives you more barrel and it gives mm-hmm. you, uh, it gives you less burn. It's kind of nice. I, I can't wait for you to send me some of samples of the stave. We've got a great, I will send you some post haste, my friend. We got a great show tonight. We're going to be looking at, speaking of Rocktober and Neat November, we're going to be talking about what does actually mean to make whiskey neat, hmm. which we're going to get in our brown news segment. We're going to talk about uh, return to office mandates and the effects that that has on the pet industry. Hmm. We're going to, uh, I'll save the crank file for a surprise. Uh, we have three legged bear. Takes three cans of White Claw from Florida for our hero segment. We're going to talk about Coca-Cola meets AI. Uh, something fun for you bobs out there that are over 40, never past your prime. 13 peaks we reach at 40 or later. And we're going to round out a nice little happy time tonight. So without further ado, now that we've talked about Brown, let's talk about Brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, homes up. Where they hiding the scotch? Let's go for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Could I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Nice talk about brown comes to us from foodrepublic.com. And the article begins, what does it actually mean to take whiskey neat? This one's dated September 11th. 2023. Leon, go ahead. You throw it out there before we start reading. What 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 is whiskey neat to Leon? Uh to to Leon, it means that it's whiskey as intended to be drank right out of the bottle. Don't do anything to it. Don't don't do anything to it. Drink it out of the bottle, room temperature. Or in a glass or straight from the bottle? Or in a glass. All right. So from the teat or from the glass, as mm-hmm. was intended. Well, what we think about here is telling the bartender you want your whiskey neat may be a good way of sampling the purest essence of a glass, but there are a few caveats you should be familiar with before you commit to this preference. First of all, (coughs) first of all, whiskey neat is different than straight up or simply up, even though the two terms may sound like they both mean a lack of dilution or additives. Although you may think that there are only two ways of ordering whiskey, either on the rocks or just poured directly into a glass without ice, the terminology gets more specific than this. Sorry. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. I didn't know. That. Do you think how many bartenders know this? Oh, the Bob's out there. The bartend, 602-529-4562 or a bottle of brown at gmail.com. This is going to get spicy. A serving of whiskey neat is poured from the bottle to the glass without any interruptions so that the drinker can slowly sip and savor the drink. Hugh Leon, well done. Besides the obvious absence of ice or water, this also means that a bartender technically shouldn't even be using a measurer or any sort of in-between vessel. Neat very specifically refers to pouring the whiskey right from the bottle to the glass. No intermediaries. Love it. So the second they measure it, you fucked up. Now let's talk about neat versus up. Maybe you don't want ice melting and slowly diluting your whiskey as you drink, but maybe you also don't necessarily want to drink room temperature booze. This is when you would order your whiskey straight up, although simply ordering your glass up is probably less confusing for the bartender. Ordering your whiskey up may look the same as neat, but the server will actually run it through an ice bath first 
before straining it into a glass. Although this will always dilute your whiskey ever so slightly, it's a good way to enjoy the subtleties of a glass while also adding a bit of chill to your drink. The reason why hmm. is slightly preferred term, by the way, is because straight up means different things depending on what you're ordering. Two terms are not interchangeable when ordering cocktails, and even ordering whiskey without dropping the straight part may get you the wrong order. Bartenders can sometimes interpret straight as whiskey without any additives, making it the same as neat. To make matters even more perplexing, the term straight whiskey actually refers to the amount of time a batch has aged, not technically a serving method. So, when should we... We're not going to say any any jokes about being straight or not straight. No. Because we're above that. Got it. Because, because you know, you're setting it up. It's pretty easy. Oh, I set up. <laughs> I don't think anybody would order a whiskey gay. I don't think anybody would ever order one up. Like, I've never heard that in my life. So I really want to test bartenders and see if it works. There's a, there's a whiskey place just around the corner. I mean, top notch. Pretty much everything they have there, whiskey. And the people that are in there know what they're talking about when it comes to whiskey. And... I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to say, I'd like this one served up and see what they say. What do you think about the term straight whiskey referring to the amount of time a batch has aged? I don't think anyone listens. To, that's not a thing. I don't know where that's coming There's from. There's no way that's a thing. That sounds like hooey. Mark yeah. Balderdash. Yeah. I support all three of those things that you just said. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's get down to brass tacks. When should you order a whiskey neat? Okay. All whiskeys are necessarily best enjoyed neat. Just like not all whiskeys should be served on the rocks. Of course, some whiskey sommeliers may disagree and believe that all whiskey should ideally be served without any impurities ruining the delicate taste. But the pro-rock school is larger than you think. In fact, some connoisseurs swear that adding just a few drops of water, including one Mr. Jones, actually helps to bring out more flavor notes instead of burying them. The truth is, really is no truth. And the debate over the right way to serve a glass of whiskey will rage on forever. Or considering how mellow drinking whiskey can be, continuing in a civilized manner, Forever, perhaps with a few cigars. I'll drink to that. So here's my go-to strategy on a new bourbon that I've never had. Or whiskey, but you know, I I always chase the bourbon. Yeah, you're the the Kentucky man. So if I find a bourbon that I haven't had and I'm in um, a restaurant, I will always order it neat. And then I'll order a glass on the side with ice cubes. Because I want to taste it neat first. I want it fire. I want to know exactly what was intended when it came out of the bottle. And then when I want to enjoy it, because I am an ice cube guy, I usually throw a cube in. I'm not talking about the big cube. The big cube's fun if you're, you know, out or whatever. But the problem with the big cube is it's got too much damn water. So it waters it down to the point where mm. you're not even drinking what you intended to drink anymore, unless the whole goal is to, you know, the one problem about drinking. <laughs> whiskey and if you're out partying or having a long night with your friends that are beer drinkers or wine drinkers you are going to run laps around them when it comes to blood alcohol level so you got to find some way to balance that out and sometimes the best way to do that is a big giant cube uh otherwise you're in trouble i think when i am just at a restaurant and you want a 30 dollar or 40 dollar pour of something that maybe you haven't had before i always order it neat and then I have a few ice cubes on the side, so I taste it neat, and then I toss one little cube in, and and that's typically the way I enjoy bourbon. That's me. Uh, Triple B is neat all day long. She doesn't ever put cubes in. All but, <clears throat> yeah, I like it, Leon. I think that's good advice. Uh, if you want to try out trying whiskey neat, may be wise to stick with the sweeter options, at least at the beginning of your whiskey journey. Test a bourbon out, or if you're feeling a little more adventurous, travel down the spicier route, go with a rye. If none of these suit your palate, you can always add ice or water later, just like Leon. I like the big cube myself, like the gigantic ice ball. Uh, I enjoy that because I get the good flavor up front mm-hmm. with the chill. And then over time, I continue to have a drink because I, I agree with you. The reason that I like these session beers or like these little pistol cans that are like 4% is because I enjoy the act of drinking. And so it's mm-hmm. nice to drink, crush a can and toss it. That's kind of fun. So the idea of, of imbibing is enjoyable. So what the ice does is it kind of, it, it extends the, uh, it extends the journey of your drink. Yeah. But I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a worthwhile topic. So next time we go to the bar and we go, yo, give me some of that up and we'll see if they uh, strain it through water. It's a thing. Right. I've seen it done before. All right. Home- homework assignment for all the bobs out there. Mm-hmm. Please respond in. Tell us what the reaction of the bartender was. And was it a legitimate bar? Was it like a hotel bar? 
Ooh. Was it like a, a bar. bar that all the spring breakers go to? What what kind of bar were you at? Because we're going to do a little bit of a, I don't know, a survey here. Because I'd love to hear how well-trained our bartenders are out there. And slight caveat here. If you order it neat and they bring in a measuring device, are you going to talk shit? I will now. There's I thought I said neat, neat, motherfucker. I didn't, I didn't say put it in the jigger. I, I said, said neat. I said that's neat. So... Before we go too far, one of the reasons we haven't had a show for a while is because I went on a long vacation and I was down under. And one thing that I was not impressed with, nor did I expect to be, was the incredible whiskey and bourbon selection of Australia. Because it doesn't exist. It is or is not? Is not. Ah. That's not their thing. They have a few. You go in most bars. There, there's of course exceptions everywhere. That's not fair. You go to Sydney. It's a big city. They're gonna have a whiskey bar. They're gonna have whatever, right? I'm talking about in general. When you go into bars, nine out of ten times the whiskey selection is maybe a Maker's Mark, maybe a Buffalo Trace. Bullet? No, they don't even have Bullet down there. Uh, a lot of times when I asked for uh, a bourbon, they offered me Jack Daniels. Oh, it was oh, it was hard. It was hard oh, to get through. Um, but you know what I got? One one thing that was, that was yeah brown on really yeah. One, one thing I was really struggling with is the very first pour of liquor I got because I you know when you're in Australia you drink beer. That's what they drink. So Pretty I was drinking a lot of beer, wine, and then I said, okay, I've, I'm over the beer. Um, I can't button my pants anymore. It's time for me to go back to what I, I enjoy. And uh, so I, they actually had Buffalo Trace at this bar. And I, and they, I said, yeah, I'll have a, just a, a neat pour of Buffalo Trace. And she's like, would you like a double? I said, yeah, make it a double. The double in Australia, and this went across the board all the way from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, all the way down to Sydney, is the most embarrassing pour you've ever seen in your life. It is not even a single in the U.S., a double. And, and I don't know what it is. They just don't drink hard liquor down there. But if you expect a decent pour, it isn't going to happen. Not in Australia. So don't, don't even try. It was, it was very sad. But that's not their thing. They're beer drinkers. Yep. I mean, look at, I mean, like, if, I mean, and by the way, I never saw Foster's anywhere I went. No, no. And I believe I warned you about that. Mm-hmm. But the pours are ridiculous. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll have a quadruple pour then because that's ridiculous. But you yeah, just can't a double and a single, a triple, as Ted Lasso would say. <laughs> uh, so that reminds me of a, of a joke that I saw on the Instagrams about Chipotle. And what the person was saying is when I go into Chipotle, I always wait for them to scoop the meat before I say double meat because I want to make sure that that is the double portion that I get. Because once you do that one scoop and then I say, oh, I'm sorry, double it. They don't get to fuck you. Yeah. They got to do another that's, one what they just did. That's good advice. It doesn't work in Australia because a single is like a spritz. I don't think they... The European they servings though, doesn't it? There's a lot of European things about Australia, despite them being a lot of fun and beer drinkers. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, you've you've been to England, right? Yeah. The UK at some point and, and Ireland and UK in general. And when you ask for a pour of whiskey there, it's legit. They know what scotch and whiskey is and they pour you a, a real finger or two fingers. And I figured Australia being a spinoff, part part of the motherland there, that maybe they poured it the same way. They do not. No. Yep. They kept all the whiskey drinkers at home. Yeah. Well, good to know. If any of you bobs out there are going to visit Australia or any Australian bobs that want to chime in, 602-529-4562 or bottleofbrown at gmail.com. We'd like to know what your take is on why down under... Is not brown under. Oh, 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 I see what you <laughs> I did see there. Missed opportunity. Anyway, let's talk about brown. Let's get to our top story. News team, assemble! Let's get down, let's get down to business. And I got news for you. Leon, we started this podcast in the midst of the pandemic lockdowns. So this mm-hmm. is a COVID darling. And one of the things we talked about almost extensively was whether or not we would ever go back to work, what that would look like, whether or not remote work was here to stay. And I think mm-hmm. the jury is probably still out on that. You've got a lot of instances where companies like uh, Goldman Sachs, Apple, Google, big tech finance are saying, you know, come back to the office or else. I saw something from Andy Jassy at Amazon saying, if you don't want to come back to the office, it's not going to work out for you. So we're interested in what are the ramifications of working from home versus mandatory going to the office. And I found this little ditty from fortune.com dated September 21st. 
You want to know what got hammered by the return to office mandate? Mm. Pet food. Get out of here. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So the article begins, return to office mandates are hammering a pet's business. General Mills spent more than $9 billion building. If you think about it, when you were home, what did you do? You went, I hate that fucking rug. You wanted to change the drapes. You started painting things. You started buying furniture. You were starting to virtual dining room into your office. You started buying shit. Well, what you also did was you spent time either getting a pet or spending more time with your pet and spending money on it. Well, guess what? When you go back to office, what you lose is you lose all the money you spent on your pet because you're no longer hanging out with your pet anymore. Really? So did they see a spike and then a decline? Are they are they just kind of leveled out again where they were pre-pandemic? So the article begins with many new CEOs now insisting that employees return to the office. Pets who grew accustomed to remote work arrangements are losing out as their owners spend less time at home. It's difficult, after all, to beg for goodies when there's nobody there. According to General Mills, which reported earnings on Wednesday, treats for dogs and cats suffered double-digit sales declines with pets increasingly away from home. This was the interesting one. Minneapolis-based food giant is better known as brands like Cheerios, Pillsbury, and Haagen-Dazs, but in recent years, it's pushed aggressively into pet treats. 2021, it spent $1.2 billion gobbling up Tyson Foods' pet treats business, bringing in brands like Nudges, Top Chews, and True Chews under its corporate umbrella. And three years before that, it acquired Blue Buffalo for $8 billion. Blue Buffalo... Oh, I did not there. know that's who bought Blue Buffalo. Blue Buffalo okay. is the pretentious dog food in the corner of the store. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Harmoning, CEO, said with investors, we don't really expect a huge rebound in our pet business for the rest of the year. Also suffering is Petco, which sells food and treats for furry companions and has seen its shares tumble 60% to date. In a survey, it found that 69% of pet parents are stressed about what returning to work means for their pets, and 41% say they would consider switching jobs if it meant they could bring their pet to work. It also shared resources for companies on how to create pet-friendly workplaces. Meanwhile, shares in Rover which operates an online marketplace for people to buy and sell pet care services like dog walking and pet sitting is up more than 45% this year. So one of the casualties of the return to office movement are little fur friends. Fascinating. I, I will say now that I, I get to make that decision and we do have furry pets in the office. It's not against the rules because I make the rules. So we see furry pets come in and it's awesome. Yeah. And they do bring you a lot of joy. So for any uh, policy makers out there, have a backbone, tell your insurance companies to go fuck off and uh, let people bring their pets to work. People out there, if your company actually lets you bring your pets to work, don't be an asshole and ruin it for everyone. Don't bring a peacock in. Nobody's a peacock for a pet. Bring a normal fucking pet and make sure your pet, if your pet can't be around other animals, you don't get to bring your pet to work. Yeah. That's just how it works. Playful, right? Yeah. That's the problem is people just aren't aware and they're like, well, I, I, I have a dog and I have the same rights as everyone else with a dog. You don't though, because your dog's an asshole and your dog fucking barks all the time. So your dog sucks. Extension of the owner. Yeah. Uh, so the article concludes, while office occupancy in major U.S. cities spiked after the Labor Day weekend, suggesting a tipping point in return to office battle, there's still good news for pets. According to the latest survey of business uncertainty jointly run by the Atlanta Federal Reserve, the University of Chicago, and Stanford, most U.S. executives expect hybrid and fully remote work arrangements will actually increase in the next five years, while fully in-person on-site work will decrease. So in the work from home versus return to office debate, it is probably going to be a slow loss to the return to office people. I don't I don't believe that, by the way. Do you believe that? I do. Uh, okay. Because the people that really enjoyed going to office are aging out. Mm-hmm. And I think your incoming workforce has become very, very attractive to the idea of I should be able to work wherever I want. We have this thing called the Internet most interaction with consumption of information and work is done on mobile. Ergo, you can be anywhere. You've got really, really good uh, cloud-based services. You've got excellent security. And so to force somebody back into the office, I understand the collaboration argument, but I really think that unless you're required to be tethered to something, um, an assembly line, for example, or a cash register in a brick and mortar environment. If your entire basis for work is knowledge work and you can do that from anywhere, then an office is simply an anchor. Uh, okay. So for those for those jobs that require a physical presence, like there's not going to be a return to office for retail. 
Sorry, retail, you got to go in. You have to interact with people. There's a physical exchange. But even that's changing. You know, you've got automated kiosks at McDonald's and you've got uh, Amazon Go where you just scan your palm print, take whatever you want and leave. So physical human interaction is in decline. Uh, and it's very likely that a lot of the stuff is going to wherever you want to be. You know, and then there's also the idea of a lot of the cities where people would go, they're just too expensive to live in. So I can see a lot of people saying, I would rather go where I can, I can live. Although I got to say, if you're in your 20s, get your ass to a city. That shit is fucking bitching. Yeah, I feel like I missed out on that. I, You know, I almost moved to Queens. Well, that was, I was very the, close. You bounced around the country, but you didn't really go to highly densely populated areas, right? I never did. I mean, obviously, I'm close to L.A., but I don't live in L.A. Um, I would say that Orange County is a metropolitan city compared to a lot of the places I've lived. Mm. Um, but I would, I'm everybody wants that one dream, like the Chicago, the Miami, the Manhattan, the, the, the opportunity to be in a hustle and bustle city. Uh, well, no, not everyone. That's not fair. But I'm saying what I'm, what I'm saying is people who want that environment want to be in one of those types of environment environments. And I, I really wanted that New York city feel. And then I was there and I'm like, why the hell would I ever want to live here? This, this sucks horribly. And, uh, it's like this weird sense of, and I, I don't mean to turn off the, the four bobs that might be from New York city, but, uh, I don't understand the draw. Like, have you never lived anywhere else? Have you never known what it's like to have more space and not have to have cockroaches take everything you own? And and have people scream and cry and, and things going off all the time outside. I, I, I just, it's, it's definitely a lifestyle. There's no, no, no comparison to it. But I was traveling for business in my twenties and I would inevitably find myself in a big city, whether it be Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, uh, good call. Atlanta. Atlanta is a great city. I mean, it's Atlanta's a great city. There's areas of Atlanta you don't go in, but for the most part, Atlanta's a great city. I think um, even Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis as a city is awesome. a really great place. Really is. Uh, what you run into is when you're young, you want to stay up all night. And most places out in the suburbs, they don't. There isn't a place to go. When mm-hmm. when we went into Manny Hattie, let's see, we went to Midtown, of course, because that's what you do when you're young and dumb is you go to the place that's touristy. You know, and you see the the Spider-Man's taking pictures and you see, you know, where the ball drops in New Year's. And then after a certain amount of time, many of the places close down and you're left going other places. You end up in the meatpacking district or the flower district or you end up in Chinatown or Little Italy. And then if you're with somebody that lives in the city, they go, hey, there's a place over by Enter Blank Park. I know we can go. And you end up going to a bar that's open until three or four in the morning. And then after that, they go, there's another place we could go. And you end up down by the Battery or up by the Bronx or all over the place. And you can probably stay up until the sun comes up. And when you're in your 20s, that is heaven. Let's keep the party Mm -hmm. going. What you don't get in the suburbs is you don't get places to stay open all night because everybody else has jobs and kids and they got shit to do. So the benefit of the cities is there's usually something going on no matter what all night long and the only experience that i think we had on the regular was vegas because that's what vegas does they want to mm-hmm. keep awake and spending money yeah i think that's fair i think the other uh advantage of being in a city is that you're on the front and cutting edge of everything right mm-hmm. you're the cut you know the cutting edge of fashion and music and whatever big act is going to go they're going to come to your city and if you're ever if you want really good food well if you're in a big city they probably have the best chefs that we have to offer in our country that are making that food. And so you have the ability to get the best of the best. You're the first to find out about the next trend. And that's sexy to a lot of people. And if you're a suburban person or a, you know somebody who lives outside the cities, you're one of those people like, I can wait. Yep. I'll let you guys filter it out. Yep. Uh, it was important enough or exciting for enough for me to, to like it. What is this new thing you're eating? Uh, stromboli yeah I'll, I'll have that when somebody out here makes it and i don't need to have the first stromboli i'll have the one that 
makes it my way one day. The other part about cities is that's where all the money is. So find a big pile of money and stand right next to it. You're usually going to get that in cities. Uh, But there's Uh, also benefits to being next to the boss because the boss wants to be in the office because that's how they got to be the boss. So I understand that there's people that want to be in the office. There's a lot of opportunity in the office. I can tell you in my day job, being in the headquarter building is a lot more beneficial than some of my counterparts that are not in the headquarter building because I can walk in the hall and bump into somebody. All day. Yeah, I I will I will be one of those dying dinosaur advocates for going into work because I think it's powerful and I think you learn things and you person to person interaction. We keep trying to pretend like it's not important or it's not valuable or you get the same interaction over Zoom. You don't. You just don't. And no, you'll never convince me of it any otherwise. Like an office meeting room and people. And what is business? What is the definition? What is business? Will you define business for me, Danny? Um, I think I know where you're going with this. There, there is a relationship factor. Yeah. Yes. It is a relationship with the mutual understanding that both of you are going to benefit financially from. Right. That's what business is. But you can't take the relationship part away. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for humans being a social species. We need to be around each other. So there is, there's a lot of benefit in going to the office. And for the record, I don't like work from home full time. I think a hybrid environment where you go in on a set period of days when you have something to do that's specific. And the idea of going into the office is not to go into the office to work. You work at home. When you go into the office, it's to interact. That's the serendipity that you want. That's the I like that. ideas. That's where you go in. And, and so when you have meetings, have meetings in person as often as possible. Get your ass to the office to talk and interact with people. And then if you have shit to do, if you have a get shit done day, do that at home because then you require yeah. the interaction. So in my mind, this whole idea of a hybrid environment becoming commonplace and, and permanent, I'm 100% for it. But I do find a lot of benefit in an office environment just based on population density. The offices where the people are, get there and get shit done. Good topic. That wraps up our top story. Let's get to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. This fucking shit made me laugh, Leon. All of the crap about Oppenheimer and Barbie and Barbenheimer. And this this was a really, really big deal. Like, what, two months ago? As we talked yeah, about. Yeah, I remember um, this. I remember this. Movies are back. And this was in the middle of the writer's strike. And the actress had just gone on strike. And I was like, no, no, Barbenheimer. And totally, yeah. You're going to go and you're going to watch Margot Robbie in pink. And then you're going to go and watch Killian Murphy in gray. And you're going to go from joy to dread and it's going to be a double feature. And everybody's going to be so excited. There's one very nice lady in the northeast corner of our country who had no fun at all because her name is Barbara Oppenheimer. Oh, wonderful. Her name is Barbie Oppenheimer. And suddenly the Newton grandmother is a phenomenon. This is her picture here. (laughs) She looks like a very nice, lovely lady who didn't deserve what happened to her. Barbenheimer could not... Get a hotel, could not sign up for anything, could not do anything because everybody assumed it was a joke. No, that's hilarious. Barbie Jones, this wouldn't be a story. If she was Sarah Oppenheimer, this wouldn't be a story, but she's Barbie Oppenheimer. Yes, seriously. In the summer of twin blockbuster movies, Barbie and Oppenheimer, and that's why this longtime Boston University professor of speech pathology, now retired, from Newton, Massachusetts, mother of two, grandmother of five, has had a summer to remember. What an unfortunate name. My husband and I knew both movies were coming. They would be out the same weekend, Barbara Oppenheimer told Boston University Today. But I didn't put together that my name connected those movies, the whole Bobbenheimer thing. A couple of friends of mine reached out. I was like, what? Hadn't even occurred to me. Then my sons reached out and they were like, this is your time, mom. (laughs) She was born Barbara Burrington. But as a girl, she was choosy about nicknames before settling on Barbie. Then around age 12, she changed her spelling to Barbie, B-A-R-B-Y, to separate her identity from the doll. Yes, she did have a Barbie and a Ken and a Midge doll growing up. But as she got older, she preferred Barb or professionally Barbara. But to this day, even as a 68-year-old grandmother, she says friends still call her Barbie. After a brief stint at Massachusetts General Hospital, most of her professional career, about 35 years, was spent at Boston University, first as an adjunct professor, then as a clinical associate professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences at the College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, Sargent College. We have a professor from the United States named Barbara Oppenheimer. That is correct. Barbie Oppenheimer. Barbie. That's fucking awesome. America. 
1980, she married Donald Oppenheimer, distant relative of J. Robert Oppenheimer of the film. Her husband's mm-hmm. father, Robert B. Oppenheimer, was a third cousin of the physicist, credited as the father of the atomic bomb. Yeah, that's kind of sad. That's pretty far removed. Well, the fun part is she saw Oppenheimer first because of the husband's connection, and mm. then she saw two weeks later Barbie. Mm. She said, we laughed out loud. I grew up smack dab in the Barbie time, and for that reason, I thought the humor and the baby dolls and the ironing boards were all great. Once the two films were exploding at the box office, it was hard for her to say her name out loud without getting a reaction. The funniest part is that you go to the doctor's office and check in. There's a big desk at MGH. So I check in. I say, my name is Barbara Oppenheimer. And they all say, we've been waiting for you. Is that your real name? <laughs> Happened on vacation. She checked into a hotel and the guy goes, you got to be kidding. Are you pulling my leg? That's not true. That's funny. Then again, at the nearby West Newton Cinema, where the young woman checking tickets insisted on taking a selfie. Few media interviews gave uh, popularity, put it to a new level. Recent stories in Slate and the New York Post caught the attention of former students. Tons of students have reached out. I worked at Boston Children's Hospital and Newton Wellesley Hospital. I would bring students there sometimes for internships. I've heard from five of them. No, I've heard from them and from undergrads too. Students from 12 years out, five years out. So this was her moment. Good on you, Barbie. That's awesome. We should all be so lucky. That is so cool. I think that that is just... and. She really is playing into it. Oh, she's a good sport about uh, it, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You saw that commercial. That reminds me of that commercial, the Michael Jordan commercial, where the guy's name is Michael Jordan. Oh. <laughs> Have you seen this? Yeah. And he goes... And David Letterman about that. They brought out all these famous people. Yeah. And he, like, goes... Uh, he goes up to, like, the person at the at the restaurant. He's like, uh, I have a reservation, Michael Jordan. And they all look disappointed and sad. <laughs> And everywhere he goes, he says his name, like at the, at the hotel, he's like, I'm Michael Jordan. They're like, ah, you know, like his whole life, people are so super disappointed to meet him. And, uh, I feel like that's what David Letterman did it during the home run, uh, the home run contest with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And he brought this guy, he goes, I want to introduce you to Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And then he brought out a whole list of people that had famous people names. Yep. It's gotta be a thing. Feel bad for him. Well, don't feel bad for Barb. She has, she's making it work. A summer to remember. <laughs> that wraps up the crank file. Let's get to the hero of the week. Of the week. Now, I want to take a special moment here and say, not only is it the hero of the week, this is a Florida hero. Oh, I mean, it feels like the trifecta having it be a bear, which everyone loves and loves White Claw. It's and not it's from Florida, bear, Leon. It's a three-legged bear. I mean, and trifecta. There's, yeah, there's a video of the three-legged bear named Tripod. Wonderful. Went into a house, took three cans of White Claw, drank them, and took off. Now, if that isn't <sighs> three-legged bear, this is hilarious. There's video for you, Bob's out there. For for all of you new Bob's joining the Bottle of Brown podcast, we like to post links in the show notes from this episode. So click on the link, get a good look at Tripod because he's a pretty good-sized bear. But you know, White Claw always party. What what is the what is the phrase, Leon? No law, no bro- breaking laws while drinking White Claw. No breaking laws with the White Claws. A family of Florida recently saw something rather unusual in their home security system: a three-legged bear stealing White Claw from their outdoor fridge. Josari Fanet Delio nailed Perfect. that. Of Lake Mary, Florida, told CBS News she received an alert from her home security system that there was movement. I immediately checked and saw the bear. But as soon as I saw him walking and limping, I knew it was Tripod. That's right. Tripod is known in the neighborhood. The bear's recognizable trait of only having three legs. He I love that the neighborhood him. named it. The neighborhood. Oh, that's, he's, he's a regular. We are surrounded by wildlife deer, snakes, coyotes, and bears. This is their habitat. We respect them and give them the space. But really, when there's a three-legged bear in town, everybody knows what the three-legged bear is. She said she called her son who was at home and was already aware something was amiss because their dog Bruno started barking. Security cameras outside caught tripod moseying in the yard, and Finette Delio's son started filming the bear from his position inside the house, capturing the bear opening an outdoor fridge. As you may know, it's hot here in Florida, so tripod the bear needed to refresh. He decided to go for the white claws and open the cooler. Love it. Images taken after tripod left show he opened a fridge with a keg in it. He also took out three cans of white claw. He broke a hole in at least one of the cans, which is how he drank it. The bear also approached their fish tank and took some fish food. And then immediately took off its top and went swimming. Because that's what happens on White Claw. Oh, quick. 
knock on the door. Put your shirt on, Peggy. <laughs> hey, Officer Larry, I thought you said you didn't want to come back here tonight. <laughs> well done, tripod. It's the most Florida bear that Florida could offer. Yeah, I mean, it's three-legged bear. You don't have any three-legged bear? drinks white claw. That has a white claw addiction. Yeah, three-legged bear that drinks white claw. That's, that's, that's the sunshine state. It's got to be from Florida. In a, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that wraps up here of the week. Let's do some science. Science isn't about why, it's about why not. Droid. Technology. Yes, science. Technology. Space. I know you're fun of uh, podcast origins, Leon. I figured out where the NASA clip came from. That's Jeezy. That's no kidding. Called Put On. And that little clip that I took has nothing to do with that song. So I'm very happy that I left it because the rest of the song has nothing to do with that. Okay. <laughs> he just said to himself, well, you don't think I could put NASA in a song? Fuck y'all. <laughs> this one comes All from right. fooddive.com. And I thought this was interesting because since we're talking about science, we could do a deep dive on this one particular episode. But for now, I thought this was interesting. Coca-Cola launches beverage created with the help of AI. Coca-Cola Y3000 is the latest flavor to launch into the company's creations platform designed to highlight its signature soda while drawing in younger consumers. This is for the youth, Leon. The youth. Mm. What is a ute? Did you say ute? Yeah, the two utes. What is a ute? Let's do it in brief here. The Coca-Cola has launched Coca-Cola Y3000, the beverage the company said is the first flavor co-created with human and artificial intelligence. Coca-Cola Y3000 is the latest limited edition flavor to launch under its Coca-Cola Creations platform. Then the third one to debut this year, Y3000 Zero Sugar and a full sugar version are being launched in select markets around the world with both options being sold in the United States. Intelligence <laughs> into more parts of their businesses, the once futuristic technology is increasingly being turned to as a tool to help develop products. AI not only helps companies expedite product development or plan for the future, but it increases the likelihood that whatever they launch resonates with an increasingly fickle consumer. They're resonating with you, Liam. The How youth. dare they? You're going to use AI to talk to the youth. The youths. The youths are not created the Y3000 experience by tapping into human and artificial intelligence to understand how people envision the future through emotions, aspirations, colors, and flavors, among other factors that then used consumer perspectives from around the world and combined them with insights gathered from artificial intelligence to create Y3000. As a Coca-Cola Creations logo composed of effervescent bubbles and the Coca-Cola Spencerian script. I never knew that. Spencer Spencerian? Spencer. That's a word I just learned today. Yes. Spencerian script uh, with the fluid dot clusters that merge to represent the human connections of our future planet. Uh, being paired with an AI-powered experience, the company said will give fans an unexpected and exciting perspective on what the year 3000 could look like. Apparel and accessories inspired by the future are also being sold in collaboration with Ambush. These experiences hmm. will help generate additional insight and buzz for the product among consumers, most notably those individuals spending time online playing games and talking to their friends. So this is a completely digitally designed soda. Okay. What it says is, similar to other beverages released under the Creations platform, the latest beverage doesn't promote or reveal a flavor profile, such as cola, cherry, or vanilla, but rather a mood or experience. Oh, I can't wait to see if this works. Yeah, this is like, a, um, this is a metaverse cola. This is, kids are just, kids are designed to imbibe this completely digitally. Ugh. If I could pick your favorite science fiction movie, but that's what this is. And this is a thing. I got to be honest. It's days like today that I just hope the internet implodes <laughs> and we just can't use it anymore. It's, <sighs> it's a different world. It's a different right, world. wondering what the fuck. In 2022, Mars entered a multi-year agreement with artificial intelligence-driven life sciences company PIPA, P-I-P-A, to accelerate the discovery of new plant-based ingredients. McCormick and company, father of season salt, Partnered with IBM yep. four years ago to comb through data faster and more effectively by knowing which ingredients work together or which ones can be used as substitutes for each other. And for Coca-Cola creations, the use of AI is a natural step that positions the drink in a way that could pique the interest of younger consumers who will want to try it before potentially increasing their consumption of other Coca-Cola products. So the idea is an AI algorithm is going to pop together. What are the flavors of a 16-year-old? 
And how can we combine them with uh, bubbles and create a drink? Now, part of that is very interesting, but they don't really give any physical reveal, right? Like it's not a, it's not a flavor. It's not a, you know, a lot of this seems like from our perspective, Leon, the way we look at it being born when we were born and seeing the world the way we see it. A lot of this is like, well, this is just fluff bullshit. What concerns me, or I should say not not concern, that's probably not fair. I am really curious about this. Is this the way that Gen Z or even Generation Alpha is going to look at the world? God, I, I hope not. Digital cola and I'll pay for the experience. Ugh. Ugh. I hope not. I hope that, I hope this falls flat on its face. That's all mm-hmm. I can say. I'm already being, and I, I'm not, I, we are like right on the edge of Gen. What are we? Gen X? Gen Z? Where, where we are we at? Are, we are. We're, yeah, we're, we're like we're, we're cuspers. We're between X and millennials. We're Xennials. Yeah, there we are. So we we know what life was before a cell phone. We do. Yeah, and I and I it it really really bothers me. <laughs> There's things that I'm excited that AI will develop for us, like cures to cancer. Uh, this is not one of them. Like, I don't know that they need to step in and give us a better flavor of Coca-Cola or a design can. I, it, I, and uh, I have a mini rant, if you don't mind. Oh, uh, I, I am a, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I am a Diet Coke drinker. I would even say that my biggest vice isn't bourbon. Ooh. My biggest vice is Diet Coke. I wish <laughs> I didn't drink it, but I do have a, a hardcore addiction to it. And people who try to tell me that Coke Zero is a sub is a substitute for Diet Coke. They deserve a big fat punch in the face. They're not the same. They're not even close. They don't taste the same. Coke Zero is trying to take regular Coke, take the sugar out, and still make it taste like regular Coke. Diet Coke had no attempt to try to taste like regular Coke. It's its own flavor profile. They taste different. And that's why I don't like regular Coke because it's too sweet and syrupy and gross. Diet Coke is is very different flavor profile. It tastes different. I can't tell you the difference in taste, but it, I don't think it tastes like saccharin, which is a lot of things that are sugar-free to me tastes like that saccharin sugar substitute. It's something different. I'm quite confident it's not good for me, but either is bourbon, either was cigarettes, and I smoked that for those for a long time. So the trend here is I like to do things that damage my body and my health. And Diet Coke is one of those things. And I enjoy, which will never be our sponsor now because I've destroyed that. But oh, it's wait, delicious. Wait, 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 I can bring us back. <laughs> can you think of really loves that product? What, Diet Coke? Yes. Oh, me. I mean, I'm, I'm their number one supporter. Yes. Leon Coventry for sure, but also the inimitable Les Grossman. Who? What? Guy talk! <laughs> it's amazing. And again, being off our rock that we call the United States, oh. going to other places, they never had, I had to go to like specialty stores to try to find Diet Coke. Every time I said Diet Coke, they're like, is Coke Zero okay? No, it's not fucking okay. It's not the same I fucking thing. Did I ask for sugar-free yep. Coke? No, yeah. I asked for Diet Coke. It's uniquely American invention. Probably because it's going to kill you. Yeah, it's not good for me. I get that. But it tastes delicious, and I'm addicted to it. And I didn't ask for Coke Zero. I asked for fucking Diet Coke. Let me uh, let me close this one out here. Earlier this year, Bex rolled out the world's first beer and full marketing campaign made with artificial intelligence. The AB InBev-owned brand said the beer, called Bex Autonomous, was selected by AI as its favorite among millions of different flavor combinations it generated. So we're letting AI choose flavors now. And by the way, I don't like Bex. I don't know anybody that likes Bex. I don't know anybody that knows anybody that likes Bex, but they did an entire campaign on it. Not cool. <laughs> I mean, we're letting AI decide what flavors we drink. drink. Well, yeah, uh, drink it. It's we just let AI decide what we're interested in. Flavor combinations, put them out there. I would try an AI beer uh, once, just, you know, bananas. But you know what? Hey, get on the right team. <laughs> Are you, get on the right team. Now's the time. I'm drawing the line. Are you on Team AI or I Human? I thought this was interesting, and this is something that we want to pay particular attention to as we get older, because I don't want to be the old grumpy man that says, get off my lawn. If a bunch of kids go, hey, we're drinking AI beer. Do you want some? Maybe I do. No, no. All they need to say is, we're drinking this cool new beer, and you drink it, and if you like it, you like it. But the AI tag is not necessary. Yeah, but haven't I don't you need to know who made it. Video? Haven't you seen the AI video? Tell you what, I'm going to help you out here. You obviously I'm instantly turned off when I hear it's AI because 
That is saying that robots have decided what we are and what we like. And that bothers me, even if they get it right. I'm going to see if I can play this one for you because it always makes me laugh. Very concerned. They took Sundar Pichai's, um, they took Sundar Pichai's investor presentation. Okay. You know, dead air is great for podcasts. You stop I that. I have an edit function where I can shut this down. <laughs> Nobody needs to know what I'm doing here. And I'm going to cut out your slurch, sir. Good. Ah, here we go. All right. So check it out. If you don't think AI is important, I'm going to play for you this YouTube video that where they're making fun of Sundar Pichai about how many times he mentioned AI in the most recent uh, investor speech. AI, 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 generative AI, generative AI, generative AI, AI as AI, 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 it uses AI to bring AI, 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 AI. If you don't think AI matters, my friend, it's on everyone's mind. Well, the good news is that it's being heavily regulated and watched over by... Oh, yes, of course. ...by our government, and and, and our best interests are at, close to their heart. Never, never, ever let it get out of control. Yeah. Anyway, that wraps up science, technology, space. Let's do some quick adulting. How old are you guys? We're not fucking kids anymore. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your pain? Everything hurts. I'm a grown-ass man, dog. I pay taxes here, fucker. We're not like you. We're grown-ups, motherfucker. When 900 years old, you reach, look as good you are not. Hmm? Leon, we often talk about getting older and how shit stops working and how everything hurts. And I'm happy to tell you that I found something from The Guardian. This one's dated 19th of September that says, once you hit 40, shit gets better, motherfucker. What? Talk about 13 peaks we reach at 40. Or later. And they're not just academic. From sex to running to self-esteem. Buckle in, bitches. Those okay. of you that are under 40, here's what you need to look forward to. Real quick, when you get 40, you play better chess. A study of 125 years of chess matches, which analyzed more than 1.6 million moves in 24,000 games, found players made the most optimum moves at about 40. Performance started to decline from about 45, but not to a statistically significant degree. There's a lot going on in chess, perception, memory, problem solving, but older players training and the accumulation of experience seem to confer a lasting advantage. Not to be outdone in the mental realm, there is the physical realm. Ultra marathons, you peak between 40 and 49. Anything longer than a standard marathon, which is often 50 to 100 kilometers and including multi-day races of many hundreds of kilometers, a 2020 study of people who had finished 100 kilometer ultra marathons found that women peaked between 40 and 44 and men, 45 to 49. And this isn't a fluke. Research consistently confirms that ultra runners peak far later than other athletes. Even more interestingly, the longer the race, the older the peak performance. So if you're not a runner, when you, when you get it to 45, buy some fucking shoes and strap them on, bitches. Okay. I, I like this segment already. Let's go to empathy. When you're reading a stranger's mood, 40 and beyond is the time. In the mind and eyes test, Participants look at a photograph of strangers' eyes and have to guess their mood, used as a test for emotional intelligence. The black and white pictures were harder to interpret than the author expected, but when you go with your gut, you score better than 89% of participants. That fits with research that found people start achieving the highest scores in their 40s. Dr. Joshua Hartshorn, professor of psychology at Boston College, Massachusetts, analyzed the data as part of a wider study into when various cognitive abilities peak. What was interesting was that people seem to plateau in their 40s, but you don't see much in the way of decline after that. It doesn't seem to get worse. And this has been complicated with other tests of emotional intelligence. We continue to read people well from our 40s right into old age. And emotional intelligence, we know, is key to success at work. Mm -hmm. Here's an interesting one. In your 50s, you get better at dressage, which is the horse competition. Between 50 and 70, your self-esteem peaks. So if you hate yourself when you hit 50... You're good. You're like, I made it, bitch. That's right. I don't care anymore. <laughs> Elastic pants for the rest of my life. Like when fucking 49, you want to shoot yourself. Just get there, buddy. Just, just get to 50. Cause then science says between 50 and 70, those are the years. Researchers speculated this might be because people, oh, it was done in Japan. Uh, more humble and balanced attitudes towards themselves, not just in old age, making peaks and steep declines less likely. You just get to a point where you're like, ah, eh, fuck it. I'm fine. Everything yeah, we all want to be there. Yeah, it's like, whatever. Here's a good one. When you get to 50, arithmetic gets better. Did I just hear a chime? It's not possible. No way. I don't believe it. Is it? Is it? Hello, gentlemen. Mr. Jones has joined us. 
Gentlemen, it is a long week, and I'm happy to be here with you at this late hour. <laughs> Welcome, motherfucker. We're talking about adulting right now, and we're talking about 13 peaks that you achieve after the age of 40. Oh, I like this. Uh, this is a good subject. Mm-hmm. What so, do I got to look forward to? Well, the next one up is when you get to 50, you get better at arithmetic. Well, there you go. Math. The math is mathin' when you get to 50. That's interesting. How does that impact us now that they've changed how math works and we have to I teach math? All math. All math. Okay. Dr. Laura Germain studied historical IQ testing for more than 2,000 Americans. The results were more varied than expected. Historically, it was thought that there were roughly two aspects of intelligence, how fast you can think and how much you already know. The baseline assumption is that young people think fast and so perform better, while older people do better on tests of knowledge. Turns out it's a lot more complicated. We saw hmm. stuff peaking at about 18 as expected. We saw stuff peaking in the middle and we saw stuff peaking later than expected. One of the later life peaks, perhaps later than you might imagine, as in arithmetic ability with test subjects best able to solve arithmetic problems around 50. Can I just say at this point in the show how impressed I am that Danny can read with a buzz the math so well. Math and motherfucker. <laughs> All right, let's get out of the 50s. Let's get in the 60s. You know what you do when you're 60? You win a Nobel Prize. Well, I mean, well, if you're not me, I got my, my 40s. Podcast, thank you for coming. Aim high, motherfucker. <laughs> Nobel recipients are often in the 50s and 60s. The average age of winners is now 44, but 17-year-old Malala Yousafzai and 25-year-old Lawrence Bragg shifted the average. The ages at which most winners have received the ultimate recognition are 61 and 63 tied with 33 prizes each. If you stick to literature, you have even longer to hit the big time. In 2018, National Geographic calculated the average age of a Nobel Literature Prize winner at 65. That's right, you youngins. You don't get the Lifetime Achievement Prize until you've lived a lifetime. Gotta earn it. Gotta earn that shit. Conflict resolution, 65. In 2010, researchers tried to test for wisdom, quote unquote, by asking participants to study social conflicts, both at a community level and interpersonal, and proposed solutions which were then evaluated blind by experts. Older participants showed more wisdom than younger and middle-aged adults. The study concluded with 64.9 as the average age of participants in the top 20% of performers for conflict resolution. Wisdom results from the accumulated set of things we've seen and experienced, our ability to detect patterns in those experiences, and our ability to predict future outcomes based on them. The more you've experienced, the more wisdom you're able to tap into. You say wisdom, I say exhaustion. Ready for the good one? Here's the good one. Sexual satisfaction, 60s. Stop. Mm-hmm. Um, bullshit. Oh, really? Um, bullshit? Bullshit? Bullshit. bullshit. What, are what are you saying? You're saying things don't get better in your 60s? They do not. It would be nice to believe Match.com's 2018 Singles in America survey, which polled more than 5,000 single adults, finding the optimal age for sex among single women to be 66. But not all investigations have offered such cheering news. A 2020 German longitudinal study found the older the individual, the less satisfied they were with their sex life, although 35% of 60 to 80-year-olds were satisfied. In Sweden, however, a study of over 60, <laughs> only 24% were dissatisfied. Can I, can I just pause? The way that you just described satisfaction, <laughs> a 20, a 20 year old is satisfied with getting laid seven days a week. A 30 year old is satisfied with five times a month, A 40 year old, one times, one or two times a month. So when you get to 60, if your satisfaction level is one time a year, yeah, I think a lot of them might be mo- mostly satisfied because the satisfaction that they just had was disgusting. And so they're like, I guess I'm satisfied. Uh, I don't need to see what I just saw again for like a year. That's just because you're hearing a boot stuck in mud in your head. You need to think about this as a more visceral experience. <laughs> okay. I mean, satisfaction is I don't not a measure. Of me. And if we want to pause the show, I'll go find him. But the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases at nursing homes is through the roof. Listen, He's, you don't have to tell me that. I know. And they fuck. are freaks. They're freaks. <laughs> you peak in your 60s. I know this. And you don't stop till you're 99. I don't think. These people are nuts. Viagra ruined the world. I just want to tell you that. It ruined it. <laughs> or it gave 
an option to not playing bingo. Calls of the nursing home, this is what you hear. Get off my arm! Get off my hip! Oh, my hip broke! Yeah. So listen, if you ain't banging it out the way you think you should, and you get to your 60s, and all rounds out. Here's a fun one for you nerds out there. 65 vocabulary vocabulary scores peak at 65 not so surprising according to the study whose area of expertise is language there are things that really require a lot of time there's just so much language you have to learn doesn't matter how fast you think there's no way of getting around the fact it takes decades to even come across certain words interestingly performance in this seems to improve significantly between the iq that dr hartshorn studied in the late 90s and the online test the peak in vocabulary is getting later and later so you learn more lol as you get older brb lol by the time you get to 60 leon there may not be any loathes left the rage will be gone research suggests older adults are more emotionally stable and less impulsive they're better able to maintain positive relationships and agreeableness do we just become nope. nicer? Not everyone over 60 becomes nicer. Everyone knows sourpuss down the street, but generally, yes, there are both structural changes in the brain and neurochemical ones. The amygdala, the brain's fear center, shrinks with age, causing older adults to become more trusting, compassionate, and empathetic. Men produce less testosterone, which makes them less aggressive and less disagreeable, and there emerges a positivity bias in memory recall. Older adults tend to recall more positive memories and fewer negative memories which we call the grandparent syndrome all right well i hope that happens to me i'm doubtful but i'm i'm for it almost there we're rounding third in the 70s you get better body confidence in a 2014 poll of 80,000 americans satisfaction with body image peaked for women at 74 so basically you hate yourself all your life and then once you get to 74 yeah i'm okay I'm, i look good whack <laughs> and at the end happiness Peaks at 82. It's happiness. You're reading around. Happiness, yes. Happiness. Hard to find. Yes, I understand. Happiness may seem like a young person thing, but the surprising thing is when older people were asked to pinpoint the happiest time of their lives, the most common response is not age in childhood, teens, or early adulthood. It's 82. Because they can't remember anything beyond that. Yeah, but that's not a fair recognition. Happiness is you got nothing to bitch about. Yeah, I guess if you don't have to get up to shit. But you got to get up five times a night to pee. Yeah, you don't have to get up anymore. It's, it's all connected. Diapers. Yeah, yeah, just don't get up. Just let fly like the cannon. Anyway, let me tell you something. A little better. The 13 things that peak after your 40s. So if you're not happy with what you're going, just wait a bit. Hey, you know, I here's what I will say, though. Every stage of your life contains some really awesome shit and some stuff that you wish was better. And then you go to the next stage. And, I agree. And that's what how it goes. So enjoy the good stuff. Very astute. Get through the bad. All right, that wraps up adulting. Let's uh, let's close out with some uh, some happy times. Tonight's Happy Times also comes to us from CBS News. This is September 13th. Scuba diving couple rescues baby shark caught in work glove at bottom of the ocean off Rhode Island. Now, I will not be playing the baby shark tune. You're just going to have to roll with it. But there is a nice little image here. <laughs> Look at shark caught in a glove at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like a dog sniffing through something, right? Oh, a, God, a that's funny. A trip in Rhode Island on Monday turned into a mission to rescue a baby shark. Deb and Steve Delph and I nailed it. Of Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. Glastonbury. We're diving on the sand flats of Jamestown, Rhode Island, when Deb Duf, Delph, Delphine? We're just going to go Delphine. The wife spotted a 16-inch juvenile shark with its head stuck inside a work glove at the bottom of about 35 feet of water. Deb, a dive instructor, said she thought the shark was dead, but when it twitched, she mentioned for her husband to come over and help. He came over and did his own little double take. She said her husband tugged on the glove, which seemed to be suctioned to the shark's head, but it eventually popped free. Deb said they were not afraid of being attacked by what appeared to be a juvenile dogfish shark, but were cautious just in case. It kind of looked at both of us, didn't look at all injured, got its equilibrium back, and then... Swam off. Deb has been an instructor for about 30 years, so this was not the first time she rescued a marine animal in distress. A few years ago, she freed a black sea bass that was hooked on a discarded fishing line. There are countless stories of underwater creatures being killed by underwater sea trash. It's an ongoing issue that near and dear to my heart, but these are the only times I've been able to save something, at least a shark like that. According to the Marine Mammal Center, increased amounts of trash, especially plastics and fishing gear, are ending up in the ocean creating a threat of entanglement or ingestion for countless marine animals 
And a little bit of stats for you here. Nearly 1,800 endangered marine mammals are consumed or become entangled in plastic since 2009. And the Dutch nonprofit Ocean Cleanup is on a mission to collect 90% of floating plastic pollution, including cleaning up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a collection of plastic debris and trash twice the size of Texas. I thought that was a nice thing to end on. You see a little shark sniffing a glove, help a little fellow out. You know, I think when you watch these videos or you watch these reels or you watch these TikToks, there's so many times where there's a human helping an animal or another animal helping another animal species and people gravitate to that. It gets like tons and tons of views because I think ultimately we all are empathetic to that. Like we want to watch that happen. Mm. So good. It does. It feels good. It feels good. Yeah. You made it weird. <laughs> Danny, you made it weird. It's just awkward. You turned it into a porno. I was, yeah. I was having a legitimate moment there. We're just trying to turn it into animality. It's a shock. <laughs> they immediately hooked the shark and then cut off its fins and ate it. Mm, shark fin soup. Mm hmm. Tasty. Now, hey, cool story. Happy times. That is our show. You can email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. Give us a call, 602-529-4562. Leave a message for Danny, Leon, the Midge, Mr. Jones, or any of our special guests. We want to hear from you. Give us ideas for content or if you, anything we say on the show. If you like the show, please like, follow, subscribe, share with a friend. The more positive reviews we get is us exposure to more people and an opportunity to, to collect and add more bobs to the Bob community. We are on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share a quiet drink with us next episode. Same brown time, same brown channel. Bottleofbrown.com. This place is dead anyway, man.